Well, praise God. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the Word of God. I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. We're going to be in Acts 26 this morning. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but for our scripture reading, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 21, we'll read verses 10 through 15. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand out of reverence for the word of our Lord. Luke 21, 10 through 15. Then he continued to say to them, speaking on his Uh, the things that must take place before his return. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will result in an opportunity for your testimony. So set in your hearts not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified, blessed by the reading of your word this morning. Uh, Use it to transform our lowly hearts to... Draw us nearer to you to conform us into the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. They will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. This has been the firsthand experience of the Apostle Paul, as we've seen over the past couple of months together. He's been beaten and bloodied by his own people. He stood before the Sanhedrin, two governors, Felix and Festus, placed into a Caesarean prison for the past two years. And now he stands before a king named Herod Agrippa II, along with his sister lover Bernice, to tell unashamedly how the Lord Jesus Christ saved him on the road to Damascus. That's what we're going to look at This morning, Paul has been given a tremendous opportunity, immortalized on the pages of divinely inspired scripture, to bear testimony to the miraculous, supernatural, God-initiated, God-ordained, God-executed, and God-accomplished salvation and transformation of his everlasting soul, which was proven by the very Spirit of God who now resides within him, the Spirit who, right here in this chapter, gives him a mouth and wisdom which none of his opponents were able to resist or refute. That's Acts 26 in a nutshell. Let's dive in here. We've got so much to get to. Uh, Verse 1.1 in your outlines. Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Now, this isn't a formal trial. There are no outstanding charges against Paul, at least not from a Roman standpoint. In fact, that's why this whole meeting is taking place here in the first place. Remember, Festus needed something to write to Rome. A couple years ago when Felix was in charge, Tertullian, the Jewish lawyer, had accused Paul of being, quote, a real pest. 
They said he was a fellow who stirred up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world, ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Why, they said, he even tried to desecrate the temple. They had no proof of these things, of course, causing both Felix and Festus to say, no, these are baseless, false accusations against this man. Well, here King Agrippa starts by saying, look, Paul, no lawyers here today. No accusers here today. You're going to Caesar anyhow, regardless of what you say here, but I'm curious about all the controversy that surrounds you everywhere you go, so speak freely. Speak for yourself. What do you have to say for yourself? What an opportunity this is for Paul. You had to be thinking that Paul, he had to be salivating at this opportunity. This was right up Paul's alley here. So Luke says, then Paul, stretching out his hand, began to make his defense, not in a formal sense, not as though he's on trial, but as a plea for himself. He's clearing his name. Okay, king, here's how it went down. Here's the truth. Here's the real story. Then he lays it all out. And notice, he begins by addressing the the king in a very congenial manner. Look how cordial he is here. Listen how friendly he is to Agrippa. Concerning all of the things which I am accused by the Jews, I regard myself blessed, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, that's really something. Notice, he's not combative. He's not antagonistic toward this Jewish king. He's not beating his chest and saying, I don't have to explain myself to some wicked ruler who has a reputation for siding with Rome against his people every chance he gets. I know your legacy. I know about your family tree, which looks more like an intertwined vine. I know about your great-grandpa's corruption, your daddy's self-glorification. I know about your incestuous escapades with the lovely lady sitting to your right. Oh, yeah, I know what you and little sister have been up to. I know what you've been doing. I don't have to defend myself to you, you sinner. Someone says, well, of course Paul didn't say that. Well, why not? That's the attitude of some so-called evangelists out there today, these hyper-aggressive, ultra-antagonistic, stick-in-the-eye mentality that they have. I remember years ago watching this street preacher in New York City. It was right before... The Broncos Seahawks Super Bowl in New Jersey. Not a great day for football fans in Denver. Uh, anyhow, there was this preacher, and he was down in the streets of Manhattan just days before. The city was packed. It was full of attractions and games and vendors. It was buzzing with all the excitement and all the hustle and bustle that comes with the big game. Well, this guy was out there. He was right in the middle of everything. He's got this big old megaphone. He's got a shirt. It's got all these slogans on it. Stop sinning. And obey God. And he's yelling, you sinners! You drunkards, you fornicators, you idolaters, you're worshiping a bunch of guys playing, fighting over a pigskin. You're all going to burn in hell. Repent of your sin and follow Jesus Christ. This guy was a sinless perfectionist. You know what that is? Those, these are folks who say that now that they're a Christian, they no longer sin, which every true Christian knows is rubbish. Sin this morning, I don't know how many times. But now this guy and others like him, they use their sinless perfection to let everyone else know how sinful they are, but that they can have sinlessness in this life as well, just like him. And what do you think the folks thought of this guy as they passed by him on the roads? Oh, please tell me more about this Jesus. Is he as lovely as you are? 
You've persuaded me through your keen intellect and eloquent, compassionate words. No, they said, this guy's a joke. And they're right, he was a joke. He was deceived. That's not what we see from the apostle here. Who, though knowing full well Herod's legacy of depravity, doesn't shout him down or scream about his incestuous trysts. He, instead, he says, thanks for the opportunity to clear my name before you. You're, you're the king. You've ruled over the temple at one point. You've appointed high priests. You're well known, and for the most part, you're respected by our people. This wasn't faux flattery either. He was glad to have the king as an audience here, proving we don't have to be combative when we stand before our persecutors. The, the message of the cross is offensive enough without our adding fuel to the flames, right? Let the cross offend them. Now, having said that, we have to, we have to remember we never compromise, do we? We never compromise. Paul certainly didn't compromise. Watch in verse 4 as he drops the uncompromising, irrefutable, irresistible testimony about how God saved him. First, he starts by going after the Sanhedrin's accusations that he's anti-Jewish. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. If they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion, here's what he's saying. I'm not anti-temple. I'm not anti-Moses. I'm not anti-Jew. I myself am a Jew, and not just any old Jew, not some Jewish convert, not some nominal Jew. I was one of the separate ones. He said it elsewhere. Circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, a separate one, separate from even the godly folks among the Jews. He's separate. And he says here, the the Jews who are accusing me know this. If they were honest, they would have told you who I was. They know how devoted I was to Judaism and all the traditions, customs, ceremonies within. I was a Pharisee. Agrippa would have known right away what this meant. Pharisees were very highly regarded at that time because many of them practiced what they preached. Sure, sure, Jesus called them out on everything else. Uh, There were certainly some rotten ones in the mix who tried to uh, tie heavy burdens on the people, who, and they spewed this hyper-legalist nonsense. But when it was all said and done, they were the ones in Israel who had the highest view of God and his word. They believed in the authority and inspiration of the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures, the, the law, the prophets, the psalms. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in heaven and hell. And, this is very important, They held firmly to the promises in the scriptures and and of the prophets, which said, A, there is a resurrection from the dead, and B, that Messiah was coming. They just got all twisted up when they started uh, treating their own oral laws and traditions as if they had come from God and they were holding people accountable to breaking divine law when actually it was just their human regulations they put into place to protect the people from violating God's law. This is why Jesus came in and said, Woe to you, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you whitewashed tombs. Paul said to Agrippa, Yeah, I was one of those guys. 
I was zealous for the law, both the written and the oral tradition. So don't tell me that I'm anti-Jewish here. That's nonsense. Now, here's the real kicker, and this is why it's important, O king. They believe many of the same things that I've been preaching regarding the Messiah and the resurrection, with the major difference being they are still waiting for something to happen while I believe it already has. That's the difference. Look at verse 6, okay? Now I'm standing here being tried for the hope of the promise made, to, made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes, it's all of Israel, hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? He says, here's why I've been on trial in Caesarea. Like them, I believe in the hope that was promised us by the prophets. Just like them, I believed Moses when he told us the seed of the woman who would uh, of, the, of the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. I believe Jeremiah when he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. I believed Isaiah when he said, The Lord himself will give us a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That a shoot would spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. I believe this. I believe Micah when he wrote, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from from you one will go out for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth are from everlasting from the ancient of days. I believed that a voice would cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Behold my servant who I'm a hold. My chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. The eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. I believed that the Messiah would come, that he would come from the line of Jesse, that he would be of the Davidic line, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, that he would be born in Bethlehem, announced by the forerunner, that he would give sight to the blind and ears to the deaf, cause the lame to leap like a deer. And I now believe he had to suffer, he had to die. As Isaiah prophesied, as David prophesied in Psalm 2, 22, 110. And I believed in the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead, which is tied together with the hope of Israel, is affirmed by Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Hosea, and others. I believe Daniel when he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to reproach and everlasting content. I believe the preacher of Ecclesiastes who said the dust will return to the earth as it was, but the spirit will return to God who gave it. I believe Job when he says, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives and that at last he will raise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh, I shall behold God. I believe, thank you, 
I believe that these promises of resurrection were fulfilled, that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he was indeed the first to rise from the dead. My accusers, they don't believe that Jesus is the one. In fact, they viewed him as a, and his message as a threat to their way of life, and so they killed him. And now that I belong to him, O king, they want to kill me too. That's the reality, King Agrippa. That's the real. The first thing Paul established in his defense when he stands before this Jewish king is to make clear that he himself is a Jew. His faith doesn't change that. His new life in Christ doesn't violate his Jewish heritage. It actually bolsters it. The hope of Israel is a Jewish promise spoken of by Jewish prophets to the Jewish people from the Jewish God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is their hope. This is what they are eagerly anticipating. Day and night, he says, they long for it. They pray for it. They're waiting for this. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was just a baby, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to present him before the Lord. Two people were there waiting for him. Anna Simeon. That's right. Luke says that Anna was an old woman. She was about 84 years old. And he said she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. What was she praying for? Luke says the redemption of Israel. Who was the redeemer? Well, there was another man there named Simeon. On the very same day, the very same moment, they're both right here in the temple. What was Simeon waiting for? Luke says he was waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer. And Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple When the parents brought the child Jesus to carry him out for the custom of the law, then Simeon took him into his arms, blessed God, and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. We're blessed through Israel. And and for the glory of your people, Israel. Gentiles. Jews. Anna was waiting for the Redeemer, for the redemption, and she realized it. Simeon was waiting for the comfort, the hope, the light, the salvation, the Christ, the Messiah. He realized it. But the religious leaders of Israel, Paul says, my own people, my own sect, my own crew, we missed it. We missed it. We missed the promise. We missed the hope. We were blinded to the reality that he had come into the world. In fact, because he revealed the darkness within our hearts and we loved our darkness, king, then we had Pilate kill him. We crucified him. And Paul goes on to prove he was just as blind as any of them. I'm just as guilty. I hated Jesus. I hated the followers of Jesus. I hated those who believed that he rose from the dead, even though I firmly believed in the resurrection. I was a religious hypocrite. Listen to how blind I was, Agrippa. Listen to how depraved I was here. Look at verse 9. 
So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my votes against them and I punished them in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. You know what that text tells us? He's no better than the guys who were shouting for his death two years earlier, before Felix. He's just like them. He's telling Agrippa, I hated Christians. I took husbands from their wives. I took mothers from their, fa- their children, family members, friends. I ripped them right out of each other's arms, and I loved it. I thought they were an affront to the living God, and I was his great defender, and I was going to defend the name of God. But in reality, he would tell Timothy, I was a blasphemer myself, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, trying to force Christians to join me in my blasphemy of the Lord Most High. Trying, anyway. I love that in verse 11. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Remember, we said last week, never compromise on what you know to be true of the risen Lord Jesus, no matter how hard they try to get you to do so. A few years ago, I came across an article in the Voice of the Martyrs, which read, 12 Christians have been brutally executed by the Islamic State, including the 12-year-old son of a Syrian ministry team leader who had planted nine churches because... They refused to renounce the name of Jesus Christ and embrace Islam. The article said, quote, In front of the father and the relatives in the crowd, the Islamic extremists cut off the fingertips of the boy and beat him severely. And as they did so, they did, they did so also to, they told the father they would stop the torture only if the two of them renounced Christ and returned to Islam. When the father refused, relatives said, the ISIS militants also tortured and beat him along with two other ministry workers. The three men and the boy then met their deaths in crucifixion. Imagine seeing your boy or your young daughter getting their fingertips cut off and somebody saying, all you have to do is say you don't believe in Jesus. Praise Allah. And his prophet, peace be among him. That's all you have to say. And we'll stop at the ring finger. Now think of that moment the boy and his dad went into glory when they refused to do it. Think of that moment when they see their Lord, who is alive unlike the dead Islamic prophet. Think of that moment they see him face to face. Well done, my good and faithful slave. May we be as bold in that hour. Amen? Praise the Lord. Paul was a Hebrew jihadist. Okay? He had the very same blasphemous religious zeal. That same ISIS-like hatred fueled his trip to Damascus. He said, I was furiously enraged. 
He says, this is who I was, Agrippa. That was my former way of life. I was so driven by sheer animosity and contempt for these Christ followers, I persecuted them all over town. And when I got done with them in Jerusalem, I headed up north. Now, this is the third time that Luke has included this testimony in Acts. Do you think this is important? You know, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you, oh, this is very important. When he says, truly, truly, oh, my word, we better lean in here. Yes, Lord. Here in Acts, it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, truly, 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 here is what happened to Paul. Okay, I want you to get this, he says. This is the third time. Verse 12, Paul says, while so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. While I was so engaged, so corrupted by my religion, so consumed with rage, as I headed to Damascus, something happened to me. Something happened to me. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a servant and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, James Boyce said some <coughs> scholars, some liberal commentators have tried to explain this miraculous event in a way, uh, a way through various theories, okay? Some said, well, probably, Paul probably had epilepsy. That his experience on the road to Damascus was actually an epileptic fit. He quoted Charles Spurgeon as saying, oh, blessed epilepsy that made such a wonderful change in this man, Would God that all who oppose the name of Jesus Christ might become epileptics in the same sense. That's right. Give me some epilepsy. But this was no epileptic. I knew if if I said that so many times. Epileptic fit. This was God reaching down and transforming this man by his sovereign, omnipotent power. Think about it. Was Paul seeking Christ? Seeking to blaspheme, seeking to kill him. Paul wasn't seeking Christ at all. He hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus with all the passion of an ISIS warrior. He just admitted to a Jewish king and before a Roman governor that he persecuted Christians to death without Rome's permission, by the way. This is a big offense. He was was so driven by hatred. He was pursuing them to foreign cities and Cities. When he got there, he tried to make them blaspheme. Then, a light, a voice, conversion. As the heart of Paul was sovereignly, miraculously, supernaturally, spectacularly transformed on that road. A conversion confirmed by the risen Lord Jesus himself, who was alive. 
How did Paul know that Jesus was alive? Well, he just had a conversation with him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Yeah, I blinded you. You're going to get your sight back. Get up, go in here, and I'll tell you what to do next. Now, what does this mean here that, that Paul was persecuting Jesus? Jesus wasn't on earth at this point. What that, what's that all about? Well, to persecute <clears throat> the people of Jesus is to persecute Jesus himself. An attack on the body is an attack on the head. Okay? Make no mistake now. Those Muslim enforcers, the jihadists, the Buddhists, the Catholics, the Hindus, the secular humanistic government officials and world rulers, everyone who has ever persecuted Christians will one day face the divine wrath and judgment of Christ himself for their blasphemy of his holy name. Unless, that is, unless before their earthly death, like Paul, God sovereignly regenerates their hearts according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And I feel the need to say this. Perhaps for the final time in Acts, before we go on to Genesis in January, notice I'm saying this very calmly, very composed. But it seems plain to me, so elementary to me, that when taken with other very clear, unambiguous, explicit, forthright, and definite sections of Scripture... That Paul's conversion here, his initial regeneration, his rebirth, as Jesus would say, his dramatic heart change was initiated, established, brought forth by none other than the electing grace of the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth alone. In other words, Paul wasn't the one who initiated this transformation in his life. It wasn't Paul's decision which spurred the heart change. It wasn't an aha moment brought about by his intellectual prowess that was the cause of his regeneration. It wasn't that God looks down some corridor of time, some fictitious theoretical corridor created in the imaginations of man and saw that Paul would accept his call. I wonder if he's going to accept me. I'm just wondering... And then, oh, he did accept me, so I'm going to react by saving him. It wasn't Paul exercising his free will to bring about his transformation because such free will unto salvation does not exist. That, too, is a human philosophy. It's theory. Oh, make no mistake, Paul had free will in the sense that he freely chose to do evil. To choose to sin against his creator, he was a slave to sin. He was in bondage to sin. He was under the dominion of darkness, under the authority of Satan, Romans 6.16. Sure, Paul could freely choose to do what was contrary to the will of God because that was his very nature. But Paul didn't have the freedom to do that which his nature wouldn't allow him to do. That doesn't even make sense. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Like the rest of us who have an earthly father, which is everyone in here, Paul was conceived and born in sin, cursed and separated from God, spiritually speaking, from conception, having inherited the sin from his father and his father's father, 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 all the way back to Adam's sin, the original sin. We're all in the same boat here. We all inherited it. Paul was born into this world, as Jesus would say, judged already. 
condemned already. Born into this world spiritually dead. So he had from his birth free will to choose which evil to partake in. But in that original, enslaved, cursed, dead, condemned state, Paul in no way, shape, or form had, according to the scriptures at least, had the capacity to choose God and therefore engage in or initiate his salvation from the wrath of God. He just couldn't do it. Paul hated Jesus of Nazareth. He hated him. He wanted to murder Jesus Christ. He wanted to murder the followers of Christ, get them to blaspheme Jesus Christ. And the only way those God-hating, Christ-hating inclinations could be altered is if the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth reached down and changed his heart on that road, which for the third time, the Holy Spirit is saying exactly what happened. He said this three times now. Proving yet again for the third time in this letter alone, you know, if Luke's reliable enough for you, that is, that it's not God and man that bring about salvation. It's not 50% God and 50% man that causes our Regeneration, it's not 75, 25. It's not even 99.9999% God and 0.0001% man that brings about the change in the heart of woefully corrupted, totally depraved, absolutely and completely spiritually bankrupt and dead human beings to saving faith. It's not, salvation is all of God. It's all of God. From first to last, God regenerates those whom he chooses to save through no doing of their own. None. And this is a good thing. I don't know why people are so offended by this. I do know why, but my heart breaks for them. This is a great thing. This is the best thing, actually. I don't want the destiny of my everlasting soul to be left with me. I want it to be up to the one who made it, especially when he is altogether good and perfect and holy and righteous. He's not going to make the wrong decision. I will always. It's like A.W. Pink says. I love this. Because God is infinitely wise, he cannot err. Because he is infinitely righteous, he will not do wrong. Here then is the preciousness of this truth. The mere fact itself that God's will is irresistible and irreversible fills me with fear. But once I realize that God wills only that which is good, my heart is made to rejoice. Because he's good. I love this. I can't get enough of this. I sleep like a baby at night because of the sovereignty of the Lord over everything, including my salvation. I and for the third time, we see God saving Paul on the road to Damascus, changing his heart, causing him to believe. Why? Because he chose Paul before the, from before the foundations of the earth. Just like he does everyone else who has ever believed from before the foundations of the earth, including you today, if you are one of his. And, and this doesn't make us better in any way. I'm not up here beating my chest either. In fact, it's the opposite. Folks who think they contribute to their own salvation, seems to me they're the ones with the ego problem. 
because they gotta have a, they got to participate in some way. I believe that the scriptures say that I'm so corrupted, so wicked, that I am absolutely incapable of contributing to my regeneration in any way. Therefore, I must depend wholly on God's sovereign electing choice. And I'm not ashamed in the least to stand here before you and say, I do. I depend on him fully for my salvation. Fully. I know God chose the base things of the world, the despised, so that no flesh may boast before him. I am one of those. Based, despised, weak, foolish. I will not boast in my contributions. Now, we will say it again. We also believe in human responsibility. Okay? We have to believe. We have to have faith. We have to trust in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever believes. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to him. We must choose to place our trust in the gospel of grace. We have to believe. Believe on Christ and be saved today. Come to him. But my friends, don't think that we have the ability to even come close to doing this in our own sinful, natural condition. We have to have our hearts changed first. We have to experience the rebirth first. Then we are given, as a gift from the author of faith, the faith that is required for justification before him. Okay? Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sin. This is literally saying you were a corpse. We were corpses. We had no life, spiritually speaking. The wages of sin is what? Death. He said in Romans 5, therefore, just as one man, uh, through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. In Adam all die. Death, dead, die. We were the walking dead. How could we choose him or even have an intellectual acknowledgement of the reality that we need a savior when we were dead? Paul says very clearly to Christians, You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what? Dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You can leave that up there, Jake, if you can. What does that word dead mean to you? I remember about eight years ago seeing my grandpa uh, just a few minutes after he died. I don't know why, but my family members, some of them were like, do, do you want to go in there and have one last moment with him? And I thought, well, him? We, him's not there anymore. Well, I don't know why, but I said, sure. And I can remember walking in that room, and it's just me and this body. I knew that my grandpa was God. It was very sad. It was very a very surreal moment. And I... And again, I don't know why. 
maybe this is a bit morbid, but I bent down and I looked into his eyes. He looked like my grandpa. He smelled like my grandpa. He felt like my grandpa, but no life. So I got down really close and I said, Grandpa. Grandpa. Now, if he would have said yes, then he would have been alive, right? But he didn't. Why? He was dead. He was dead. Can you honestly sit there and tell me you think this carcass had the ability to respond to me under those circumstances? Can you, can you tell me that? Just tell me if you can then why do some change the definition of that word when talking about our own spiritual condition? Why? Answer, because, as has been said before, a God who is seated on his throne is a God they love to hate. I'm just preaching this because it's the text. My grandpa was dead, okay? But if someone came in with an AED or those things that went and shocked his heart and made him alive again, then could he have said yes? Sure. But he couldn't have pulled out the paddles to shock his own heart, right? Look at the words here. This is not my words. This is the Holy Spirit. Spirit's word here. We were dead in our transgressions and sin, but he made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. Paul was physically alive on that road, but he was spiritually dead, as dead as my grandpa sitting there right there. Until God made him alive by breathing life into his cold, dead heart. Do we understand that after the third time? Well, it was then and only then that Paul responded with faith and obedience. That's how it works. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Paul still had to believe, but he would believe because he was chosen to believe. And because he was chosen to believe, again, he would now be given from God a heart that had the capability to obey God. Just like us, he didn't know who God chose, and he didn't know who God didn't choose, so he preached to everyone. Okay, he preached the same gospel to all men. Just like us, he, he, he went out and he preached the same message of turning from darkness to light, turning from Satan to God to all men, Jew and Gentile alike. And just like us, Paul left the saving to the Lord. And he prayed. And he went out on the mission field. And he, he longed for people to be made alive by the sovereign grace of his God alone, just as he was. He hoped they too would be given a living heart that could then choose to do right. 
to, to obey, to listen to the promptings of the Spirit inside of him, as well as the clear teachings of God through his word, that their heart would be made alive just as his was. So, King Agrippa, he says in verse 19, I did not prove disobedience to, disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring, both to those in Damascus, first he was preaching, right in Damascus, didn't even get out of town, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, practicing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, king, some Jews seized me in the temple. They were trying to put me to death. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand here bearing witness, both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was going to suffer, and that as the first of the resurrection from the dead, he was going to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This is the testimony of God's saving work in his life. Here's who I was. Here's what happened to me. Here's what I did after that. Here's where I am now. He chose me. He created me. He convicted me. He changed me. He then called me and commissioned me to preach this good news to others. Some I've seen him regenerate. Some he gave the ability to repent of their sin, making them righteous in his sight. And some he didn't. But I kept on preaching this message of repentance the turning of the whole person from death unto life, from darkness to light, from this evil world system to God. Because, well, that's what he told me to do. So I obeyed him. My new heart, the one he made alive when he gave me new life, now longed to live for his glory and his glory alone. This is, the, yeah, the, this is obedience. This is the, the hallmark of the new life in Christ. Christ who said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? Well, again, dead men can't do what he says. But only those who make, whom he makes alive, now they have the ability, right? Sovereign regeneration produces within me a genuine faith. Genuine faith always uh, then produces genuine repentance, works, and obedience, always, always. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our obedience, but genuine faith is pregnant with works. In other words, if a person has true faith, true God-given faith, works will be born out of it. I told myself I wasn't going to do the hand motion there. True works will be born of faith. True faith will produce genuine obedience. And Paul's message to Agrippa is this. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here a dead sinner made alive, saved by grace in obedience to my Lord's command. As a living proof that Jesus is the Christ, that he lives, that he was raised from the dead. And then all the Father gives him will be made alive, will be made new, that will be raised to life with him as well. That's what I'm doing here. Luke says in verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus stands up. He says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. 
Great learning is driving you out of your mind. He says, you're crazy, Paul. You're nuts. You're insane. What are you talking about? Resurrection? What? Well, this just goes to show us there's nothing new under the sun. You know, a lot of people think that what we're doing in here right now is insane too. What are we talking about? A dead savior reading from some book? Listen to a guy talk about some dead guy? That's what the world thinks. Good night, I think there's a game on right now. What are we doing here? We should go watch the game. This is, this is Festus mentality. He's heard enough here. Way too much time in the study, Paul. Way too much time. You're nuts. But Paul said in verse 25, oh, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. I speak with him, uh, to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things can escape his notice. This has not been done in a corner. These aren't easy words. They're sobering words. But they're true words, and the truth matters. The king knows what I'm talking about. All Jews who know about what I'm talking about today, Jesus of Nazareth being killed by the Sanhedrin, by Pilate, especially a Jewish king, he knows what I'm talking about. This is not done in the shadows here. See, he goes right back to Agrippa in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets, he says? I know you believe. But Agrippa replied to Paul, in such a short time are you persuading me to become a Christian? See, Agrippa, he was in a pickle here. If he said, no, I don't believe the prophets, the Jews would have gone crazy. He would have been out as king. But if he said he did believe in the prophets as Paul had presented them, it would mean he was in agreement with Paul regarding Jesus, and everyone on the Roman side would think he was out of his mind too. So he avoids the question by asking a question of his own. What are you trying to do, convert me? Verse 29, Paul says, I would pray to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He says, that's exactly right. I want you to be made alive too, knowing full well of your depravity, your sin, your blasphemy of the true and living God. You can be forgiven today by faith in the gospel of grace. I want to be with you, king. Not just here and now, just, not just in the here and now, but for 10,000 times 10,000 years, giving praise to the glorious name of our God for what he's done for us through his son, the living God, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the message for the folks walking in the streets of Manhattan, right? And Denver, right? And just like that, Paul shared the gospel with a king. But at this point, the king wasn't hearing it. Okay, he had his mind set on temporal things, earthly things. Look at verse 30. The king stood up, and the governor and Bernice, those who were sitting with him, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Same old story. An innocent man condemned by a guilty world. We'll close with this here. Paul asked Agrippa a question earlier. Why is it considered unbelievable among all of you if God does raise the dead? The answer was, as Spurgeon said, 
While the gospel is preached in the ears of all, it only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of soul. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless there were a mysterious power going with it, the Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to the stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the word to give it power to convert the soul. That's right. The Spirit and the Word converted Paul through no doing of his own. We'll see in our time next week that Paul remained a captive to Rome, bound with the other prisoners as he set sail to stand trial before Caesar. But this was no big deal to him as he already had the eternal confidence that he was already made a prisoner for Christ, a slave of the sovereign as he counted it all joy to suffer for the name of his Lord. How about you here this morning? How about you? Are you a slave to the sovereign of the heaven and the earth? Are you one of his? Are you able to bear testimony to the work that he's done in your heart? Has he made your heart alive? Do you believe in his promises? Do you believe in the hope of the resurrection from the dead? Do you Believe that you will be among those raised to eternal life because of the finished work of Christ at Calvary? If you're not sure, I would invite you to believe, to respond to his word this morning, which, you, which you've heard this morning. I, I would implore you, I would beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. To, to turn from this world, to turn from your sin, turn to God by faith, to cry out to him, to ask him to breathe new life into your cold, dead heart. And I'm confident that should you do this today, should you sincerely do this today, that he has already made you alive together with Christ. And all by his amazing grace and all for his everlasting glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray now and we'll have Noel and the others come up. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise and honor and glory for being the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. We rejoice in your sovereignty, we, we rejoiced in your omniscience, your omnipotence, your, your perfections, all your glory. We're so grateful that you have chosen to save us through no doing of our, of our own. We wouldn't have it any other way. We're so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for your sending your son to die for our sin in our place as our perfect substitutionary atonement. We're so thankful for the blood that was spilled that washes away our sin and allows us to stand justified and made right in your sight. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.